Good morning. It's good to see everyone. I'm, we're glad you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting, um, welcome. Uh, just to let you know, uh, it is our practice to pick a book of the Bible and to go through that book uh, each week. And we are in the book of John, so if you want to turn there. And specifically, if you don't have a Bible, and there's one in the pew, you'll want to, or on your, your phone or whatever, look for John 4. You'll want to follow along in John 4 this morning as I go through 42 verses. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, we're going to be here for dinner. I can already tell, but that, that really isn't the case. Uh, this, is, this is the classic story of Jesus and the woman at the well, or the Samaritan woman. And it's narrative. It's narrative, and so it's a story. And so you go through it, and it's cohesive. And my goal this morning is to get this woman saved before we leave here. And that's at the end of the story. So I don't want us to leave it hanging for another week. Even the Samaritans get saved. Many Samaritans get saved in this story as a result of Christ's interaction at the well with her. And so I want us to look at this and uh, uh, remember how it fits into the overall book of John, namely his purpose in writing it. Therefore, he says in John 20, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things that I've written down, John says, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the book of John is about putting Christ on display, billboarding Christ to you and I and to the world so that people will be saved. He sent the Savior into the world. He sent the Savior to this woman at the well. And I want you to just see this in one sitting this morning, if we can make it. And we're going to try and just talk through this. And uh, there's some points I'll go back to next week within the text. But for today, I just want us to look at the whole story. So 1041 maybe, or 1061 in the Pew Bible is where this is. You'll want to follow along as we go through this. We're looking here at the story of the woman at the well, verses 1 through 42, John chapter 4. First, you start with the historical setting, the historical setting, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees, verse 1 says, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Notice Jesus leaves Judea to go again back up to Galilee. Um, Jesus knows that his teaching and his messianic uh, claims were going to start having an effect. The Pharisees are going to start opposition towards him. They are already concerned about John the Baptist, but now they're starting to realize that even Jesus is more, more popular than John the Baptist was. And so to avoid a premature confrontation with these Pharisees and religious leaders, Jesus decides to leave Judea and go back up to Galilee. And to do that, we're told in the next verse that he had to pass through Samaria. So Judea is in the south. If you had a map of Israel, Judea is the region in the south. You have Jerusalem down there. Then you have Samaria in the middle. And then you have Galilee in the north. 
And so to get there, the straight shot would be to go right through the land or the area known as Samaria. Little historical background, can't do a whole lot here this morning on this, but the Samaritans came about as a result of the divided kingdom back in the Old Testament. After the reign of Solomon, his two sons divided the kingdom, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Jeroboam in the north, uh, Rehoboam in the south. He goes and takes 10 tribes, and they're in the northern part of Israel, then two tribes in the southern part of Israel. And that became the northern kingdom. The Samarian region became the northern kingdom. They are invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians take this people in the northern kingdom, deport them, take them away further into captivity. They leave some in the land, and then what they do is they bring foreigners into the land into that region who intermarry with the Jews who were left there. And that became the Samaritans. The capital becomes Samaria of this northern section, this northern region of Israel. Um, Then 200 years later, the southern kingdom, the two tribes that were in the south, they're taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And they go to Babylon for 70 years, Persians eventually conquered the Babylonians and let the southern kingdom go back to the land to build their temple, to build the walls, and things like that. Um, So, you have what the Jews in the south consider to be racial half-breeds in the north called Samaritans. They intermarried. And in addition to intermarrying, they sided with the Assyrians when the Assyrians tried to invade the southern kingdom. So they were viewed kind of as traitors in the mind of the southern kingdom. Not to mention the fact that they worshipped a different, had a different form of worship than the uh, southern kingdom. They tainted their worship uh, with all kinds of uh, other other worships. They kind of mixed their worship with other things. The Samaritans did try, did try to help the southern Jews when they came back from Babylonian captivity. They said, let us, let us help you build your temple. We'll give you some help. The southern Jews said, no, you are half-breeds in their minds, and they wanted nothing to do with these uh, northern Samaritans And so there's always this bad blood for many hundreds of years between the Samaritans and the Jews of Judea. So they didn't have any dealings with them. They just sort of stayed away from them and said to go through their country was not always uh, the ideal thing because you'll get contaminated by them. It's not to say the Jews didn't go that route. That was the quickest route. If you're going to Galilee in the north, Galilee's up here, Samaria, Judea. That's the quickest route to go. But a lot of Jews would choose to go around the River Jordan or take the coastal route or something because they didn't want to get contaminated by the Samaritans. So there was bad blood. So to say that Jesus had had to go through Samaria doesn't mean that there wasn't another route that would have been acceptable for him to take. He could have taken the route through Samaria. There's nothing wrong with that. Many Jews did that, especially Jews who were primarily from Galilee. Judean Jews had more of a problem with it, but Galilean Jews, the northern who were north of Samaria, they didn't really have as much of a problem with it. 
But to say he had to do it probably has more to do with the fact that there's a divine appointment that Jesus is going to have with a Samaritan woman that's going to be very important interaction. And so to say he had to do it simply means that there's this divine appointment. I believe that is the correct understanding of the had. Verse 5 says this, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So he's on his way to Samaria. He comes to this place of Sychar. Or Sychar. It's a, a, a city that's very rich in Jewish history. It's a place where Jacob in that region, Jacob settled in the Old Testament. It's a place where Shechem is. Shechem is where the bones of Joseph are buried in that region as well. It's located at the foot, I didn't say this earlier, it's located at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Since the Samaritan Jews were not allowed to go into Jerusalem to worship, they came up with their own place of worship called Mount Gerizim and established their own form of worship. Also, Jacob's well was there. We're told in verse 6, Jesus is wearied from his journey, we're told in verse 6, and he was sitting by the well. It was the sixth hour. Sixth hour on the Jewish clock would start 6 a.m., you would start the clock, and the sixth hour would be high noon. Jesus is weary and he's tired. Very interesting to me that the book of John is a book about presenting the deity of Christ. Christ is God in human flesh. And yet you see things like this throughout the book of John that remind us that he was fully man as well. He got tired. He got weary. We see other places. He got hungry. He wept. We see the humanity of Christ interspersed with all of these tremendous statements of the deity of Christ. He was God and he was man. That is who Jesus is, the God-man. Verse 7, notice what happens while he's sitting there uh, at the well. A woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Just a couple notes here. Not a normal time of day to draw water. The high noon hour, not a normal time. So this is a, she came alone. No one else is there but her and Jesus. Another observation would be that um, coming by herself, usually this is something that women did together. So very much possibility from what we're going to see here later, she may be a social outcast, her own people. She may be viewed as a woman that you don't associate with by her own people. And she's despised, she's rejected. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Verse 8 says, because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Normally his disciples would have done that for him, drawing water for him. He's the rabbi. But they were in town getting food. And Jesus knew that, and he knew he'd have an opportunity to breach, to breach social customs. That's what he's about to do, breach social norms. So he's there alone with this woman, and the Samaritan woman knows there's something unusual about this. The Samaritan woman knows the differences between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritan woman is, is taken back by his request to her, a Samaritan woman, him, a Jew. 
Because she knows that animosity, and so she's shocked. And you ask me for a drink, how you, verse 9, said to him, how is that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Parentheses, for a Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jewish men would not talk to Samaritan women. They barely talked to their own women, by the way, but they definitely did not talk to a Samaritan woman who was viewed as perpetually unclean by the Jews. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. I'm a woman. You're a man. I'm a lone woman, and you're a man. And Jews don't talk to women, and women especially who are alone. And the words, see their dealings, dealings, it really is an interesting word. It has to do with association. It has to do with they don't share things. Listen, you want to drink out of my water bottle? You know, it's that kind of issue. It's one thing for him to give her something to drink. It's another thing she, he would have to share her water cup or whatever it is that she's going to get water in into. And that's something you just don't do. And so he is breaking and breaching all social customs by doing this to drink from the same vessel. And none of this makes any sense to this woman. And so Jesus gives an explanation beginning in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, well, I love this, living water, living water. She is, she's concerned about drinking out of the same cup. She's concerned about association issues. Jesus just blows past all of that, all of the breaches he's just made of all social customs, and he goes right into this and changes the focus and begins to direct the attention to himself. She doesn't get that yet. She still thinks we're talking about literal water. She thinks we're talking about living water, water that tastes better than stagnant water. Stagnant water would be water that's maybe set in the well for a period of time. It rained, the water gathered, it's been sitting there for a time. Though the well does mean a flowing underground stream to some extent, it sits there until somebody gets it out. And so living water in her mind, because she's still thinking water, living water in her mind is water that is going to taste better not stagnant. But here Jesus is directing attention to himself. He blows past all of the ethnic issues because that's not the issue to Jesus. That's not the issue at all. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, he could mean and this is just a good tactic of evangelism. He's draw, like I say, drawing the attention there. Like when you're talking to people about the gospel, don't get distracted by all of their side issues. Well, what about evolution? What about uh, does does did Adam have a belly button? Did I mean just things like that? You know the things people want to distract you with. Things they want to come up with to say, hey. Uh, 
what about this? What about that? Um, he gets this, keeps the focus right there, comes back to Jesus. We'll see that more as we go through this. Uh, do you know to whom you are speaking? That's the only issue that matters. He's going he's to show this woman, the greatest need you have is me. <laughs> You've got a lot of problems, and I am your answer. That's what he's going to say. So she's not thinking, she's thinking literal water. I'm sure that's going on in her mind right now. But when we hear that, our minds jump to salvation, the water of salvation, eternal life, living water, the words of living water. She says in verse 11, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. It's about 100 feet, by the way, 30 meters, 100 feet. Where will you get that living water? The water is used, actually the water is used in the Old Testament to refer to salvation. Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. We read Isaiah 51 earlier. For everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. You know what the problem was for this woman? She's a Samaritan. You know what happens to Samaritans? They don't accept anything but the first five books. They don't have Isaiah. They don't have these Old Testament references to living water. They reject that portion of scriptures that I just quoted for you. So she asks this very surprising question in verse 12. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? This is his well. He dug this thing. Even though there's no Old Testament reference, by the way, to this well being dug by Jacob, this is our reference, so we accept that for sure because it says it here. But he's the one who gave us this well. Are you greater than him? Sort of a rhetorical question she's asking. She's expecting, no, surely you're not greater than Jacob. This well's been here 1,900 years. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Talking about the water in Jacob's well. And then he goes from the literal to the spiritual. Verse 14, water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You drink the water I'm talking about, it goes down inside you to eternal life. It's supernatural, and it's powerful, and it's transforming, and it's satisfying. And you won't ever thirst again. You're just going to get thirsty again drinking Jacob's well water. The thirst he's talking about is not the thirst for natural water. We need natural water to live but the, 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 the saddest thing is we need living water to live as well. Many people get all the water they want, natural water, but they don't have living water, the water that gives eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Maybe she's starting to track a little bit here. Literal, literal to the spiritual. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. That's about a mile from town to this well. 
Day after day I come, my thirst is not quenched. I have to come back. And then Jesus does something incredible. He wants this woman to have living water, but first he must show her her need for it. I want to show you why you need living water. He's going to point out the most dominant sin in her life. Not the only sin. We got all of us got lots of sins, but this is the dominant sin in her life. In fact, this is what's keeping her from seeing well that Christ is talking to her about. And so he's going to address this issue as we, that we see in verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. Before she can have it, she needs to see how badly she needs it. Jesus knew all about this woman like he knew about Nicodemus. Remember? He knew all about Nicodemus. He knew what Nicodemus was thinking. He knew what Nicodemus needed to hear. Same with this woman. We saw that back in chapter 3. And so what he does is he brings her sin and puts it right in front. Right in front. It's what he did with the rich young ruler. He wanted salvation. He puts his sin right in front. This This is your block right here. This is your block. You love money more than me. That's what Jesus does. I got to love Christ more than I love my sin. And the first thing I need to see is I need to see my sin. A lot of people think they're okay. A lot of people, a lot of people think that they're on the right path. They have a wrong understanding of themselves. They think they're doing everything okay. And I'm a Samaritan. I'm okay. I'm a Jew. I'm okay. I'm a Catholic. I'm okay. I'm a Baptist. I'm okay. He said, no, I want to show you the issue. You see, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It only makes sense that he would put sin at the forefront. That's what he does. 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. That's a true statement, by the way. She has no husband. But Jesus knows there's more to the story than that. You have correctly said, I have no husband. That sounds like a crafty answer. She doesn't want to give too much information to this stranger. But with divine wisdom, he exposes her life-dominating sin, her moral blindness. He exposes the messy part of her life. For you have five husbands, verse 18 says, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. She may have been trying to be evasive by, I have one husband, But Jesus says this is what needs to be repented of if you want that living water I'm talking about. I don't know the details of the five husbands. I doubt doubt that it's because they have died. I doubt that or Jesus would not be bringing this up. There's no character flaw in the death of a spouse and getting married to somebody else. That's not a character flaw. Death is not a character flaw. He's exposing things about this woman that stand in the way of eternal, of, of, of living water. Could have been certainly divorced. They, she, could have, she could have poisoned them. Who knows? And most likely divorce. She's had five husbands and she's living with a man right now that's not her husband. He, he's exposing her sin 
Some may have called her a prostitute, possibly true. Jumping in and out of relationships. Maybe the present guy is married to somebody else. We don't know. But no matter how you put this, being married five times, that is not a happy person. She's not a happy person. It's a shorthand for misery. Divorce is messy. Those of you who have been through it know. Things that lead up to divorce, things that happen to divorce. You're just raking your heart across broken glass every time. That's what she's done. It's terrible. Lots of pain. She's probably abused by some of these men. Taken advantage of. Maybe there's a situation she's had to get out of. I don't know. But you know what she's been doing? She's been drinking from the wrong well. Jeremiah says that. Jeremiah 2.14, 2.13. My people, I have this against my people. They have gone to broken cisterns to drink. They've turned away from me, their God. And they've gone to broken cisterns that make the promise of satisfying, but do not satisfy. Maybe there's somebody here this morning like this woman. Your heart's been drugged across broken glass. You've been hurt and abused. You're far from God. You're angry at God. Turn your back on God. You keep jumping from one relationship to another relationship or one, one idol to another idol because you want to find living water and you can't find it. You go to cisterns that promise it's living water but it leaves you empty and unsatisfied. Tragic. Sin has destroyed her life. She has a sinful, painful past. He wants her to confess and acknowledge it just like he wants you to. Confess and acknowledge it. Because you cannot be saved, my friends, unless you admit you're lost. The woman said to him, verse 19, you with me? Verse 19. The woman said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. I've never met you, but you've never been to this well before. But how you got this knowledge about me? And then interestingly enough, she turns the subject to worship. And I don't know, I don't know, I've read different people on this. I don't know if this is another, you know, think, ooh, the conversation's getting a little tight. I think we'll talk about what church you go to. You know, a worship issue or something like that. Or it could be a legitimate question about the differences between Samaritans and, and Jews. It could be a legitimate question. I'm going to take this section of this next week and look at it a little more closely. But let me just say this. She, she, uh, she brings up the theological controversy between Jews and Samaritans. Right here behind me is Mount Gerizim. That's where we worship. You Jews say you worship in in Jerusalem. What's the right way to worship? What's the right place to worship? Is her question. And Jesus goes on, and if this is a legitimate question, Jesus certainly takes time to show his authority because what Jesus does here is he changes the place of worship. (laughs) And he says worship is not about a place. Worship is not about a place. Notice what he says. 
He says, woman, he said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming. That hour, by the way, is the hour of Christ going to the cross, the hour of his resurrection, the hour of his ascension. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It won't be a place anymore. The location will not be the concern anymore. In fact, when Jesus goes to the cross, the veil of the temple is ripped in two. Access to God is open through Christ. You don't need the temple anymore. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Knowledge is the issue, not the place. Yours is not based on Scripture. You only've got the first five books. You only have a portion of it. You've intermingled the other things in with your worship. Jews at least stand in the stream of divine revelation. They're God's vehicle. That's what he says. Salvation is from the Jews. When the Jews worship according to the Old Testament, they're doing it correctly. Verse 23 says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's human spirit and truth. It will be with your whole heart. It will be based on truth. Truth will inform that worship. You'll be empowered by the Spirit of God, and Jesus is saying, I have authority over worship, and he does. He has the power to say it's not going to be in any place, and it's going to be different than it is now for Jew and Samaritan and anybody else who has living water. God is spirit, and those who worship him, verse 24 says, must worship in spirit and truth. All this is shocking to her, no doubt, but then she goes on in verse 25 and says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. How much she understands of all that he has just said about worship is not sure here, but she knows that when Messiah comes, he'll make all this stuff clear. And notice what Jesus says to her in verse 26. Tremendous statement. I who speak to you am he. The man you met at the well today is the Messiah. I am he. Literally, I am who speaks to you. I am. The same words used by God when he told Moses to go tell Pharaoh to set his people free. Who shall I say sent me? I am. God says, I am. I am God. That's what Jesus is saying to her in verse 26. Well, just when things really get going, you know, somebody pops in. (laughs) The disciples. You've seen that happen before. You're talking to somebody and you're getting the conversation really going in a direction and all of a sudden, the guys come come by with, with lunch or something. Of course, we don't believe that that doesn't mean somebody's going to get saved just because of an interruption. Most of us are Calvinist, and we know God's in control of salvation. But he says, he says at this point, the disciples came and were amazed that they'd seen him speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Um, 
They return from being in, the, in town. They, their unvoiced concern, this is a woman, this is a Samaritan, what's he doing talking to her? They hold that back. They've learned a few things in the seven months that they've been with him. But now what we're going to see is how this whole thing changes and how they're going to be told by the result of this conversation, how they're going to be told, how they're going to get involved and become fishers of men. This is a transition in the story when they come back on the scene. They're not going to just be observing anymore. Jesus is going to start engaging them in his ministry. He hasn't done that before. This is a first time. Verse 28, So the woman left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men there, um, and said to the men, she, she wants to tell people, the very people who have avoided her, she wants to go and tell them. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? It cannot be. It just can't be. I was just getting water like I do every day. And I meet the Messiah. This just can't be. And, and she speaks sort of in hyperbole here. Come see the man who told me all the things that I have done. He didn't tell her all the things she had done, but he knew enough that made her think, if he knows that much, he must know a lot more about me. Just shows the mess of her life, all the things I have done. Verse 30, they went out of the city and were coming to him. This is all the people in, the people in Samaria, some of the people she had talked to. She may not be convinced, but she was convincing enough that they would go out of the city to see this one at the well. Disciples have to wonder what is going on through all of this, all they've seen. But these people in the city are impressed with something about her, the change in her countenance, the enthusiasm in her voice, whatever. Meanwhile, the disciples are saying, Jesus, eat. What I want you to see here is I want you to see how things begin to change for the disciples, how this conversation begins to impact the disciples. Notice in verse 31, he says, eat, Jesus says, Jesus uses that statement, eat, to teach them, teach them something very important. They're thinking, they're thinking literal food when Jesus says this, I have food to eat that you do not know about. They think, just like the woman thought the water was literal water, they're thinking the food is literal food. Jesus says to her in verse, excuse me, Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples were saying to one another, well, we didn't bring him anything. Did somebody else bring him something? They're thinking literal food. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, my food, my satisfaction is what I have is more nourishing than physical food, more nourishing than bread. Uh, it's the joy I get from sharing the gospel. That's the Father's will that the gospel be preached. I get great joy. I get great satisfaction. That's food to my very soul. When I was dealing with this woman, I was doing the Father's will. That's my food. 
because that's the Father's will. Knowing, knowing that I'm fulfilling the Father's will. In the next couple of days, dozens of Samaritans are going to come to Christ. And Jesus uh, tells the disciples that what's going to happen is better than bread. Better than bread. Better than food. Better than the satisfaction you get from eating physical food. This is a greater satisfaction to my soul. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Maybe you have shared the gospel with somebody and you've experienced the high, so to speak. We're talking here. When you're telling somebody about Christ, you're doing something that God wants you to do. He wants us to do. To tell others about Jesus to tell others about living water, to tell others about how they can have a right relationship with God. Maybe you've experienced that high that comes from doing that. That's the most important message. That's the reason he came, to save sinners. That's the reason he came, was to rescue sinners from hell by telling them to repent and believe on the gospel. So the disciples have missed all the action up until now. Now Jesus is about to thrust them into it. Notice in verse 35, he mentions a saying that they have. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. This is a saying, this is a saying that spoke of you plant and then there's a delay. You plant, then you wait four months for the harvest. That's what he's saying here. There's a saying that, that you say, that, uh, that you talk about in, in your culture. It's an agricultural saying. You plant, you wait, and then the harvest. Four months. Jesus says this to them. We don't have to wait today. The seed was planted today. Now the harvest is is coming out of the, is running out of the city right now. Out of Sikar is coming all of these people. That's the harvest. There's no waiting. Planting was done, and there's no waiting. Uh, look, they're coming to meet me. They're coming to meet Jesus like a ripe harvest. Verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. He says, I did the sowing and there's no gap. I will see the reaping. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Jesus is the the sower. You guys are about to be the reapers. This is what the point is he's making. He's making the point that you may not have been the ones that were here today to sow the seed, but you will get to join in the work and labor of another. That's his point. The sower and the reaper rejoice. That's his point. It's what Paul told the Corinthians. Paulus, I sowed, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. We rejoice together. It's the same idea here. He wants them to know that they're going to be involved 
Uh, and you think about it, a lot of people don't come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel. Somebody may plant that message. Somebody may can say it, plant, uh, go to them again and give them that message. It's not usually their first conversation or exposure to it. But sometimes it's several conversations and then somebody happens to be there to reap what has been sown. That's his point here. We're sowing and we're reaping. Today's a little different because I sowed and there's no gap and we're reaping. And you're going to join in that reaping because you're going to see the results of the seed being sown. Because the, the response in Samaria is going to be great. And they, they're, they're reminded that, you know, John the Baptist was in this region at one time. So he sowed. A lot of these may be responding not just to what I've said today, but to what John the Baptist did, and this has only been reinforced by this Samaritan woman, possibly. Verse uh, 37, for in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You were in town shopping. Others have labored. God prepared these people's hearts. John the Baptist, prophets, planted, watered, reaping. That's the illustration that Jesus gives to them. Verse 39 says, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. She said this to them, He told me all the things that I have done. Salvation comes to Samaria. Verse 40, So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. Listen, that's amazing. To ask a Jewish rabbi to stay in your city for two days and that he would do it for two days. When you think of all the racial, ethnic differences, they were no barriers to Christ. We must remember that. We must remember that. They had confidence in him and they had conviction that he was the Messiah. And many more believe because of his word. And you know what's interesting? If you read in the book of Acts later on, when Philip goes to Samaria, he is given a tremendous reception there. And you have to think that it's all because of this encounter a few years earlier when Jesus and the Samaritan woman had this conversation. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Fascinating way to end the story. Fascinating way to end the story. You would think the woman would be put up on everybody's shoulders and say, oh, she's the hero of the day. Nah. She just kind of goes back into the crowd. The focus is on Jesus. The focus is on Jesus. She got saved. She told others they got saved. And we might be tempted to think, oh, she should be the hero. But she just gave her testimony. Um, she said, the, and the, I love that statement, the Savior of the world, and not just to the Jews, but to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. It's not just the Jews. See that at the end of verse 42. This is the first example of cross-cultural evangelism, folks, by the way. You see it right here. 
The gospel directs attention to Jesus. The lesson for her and her neighbors is that uh, Jesus is the one who brings the living water that we all need. He's the only one that can, he's the only one that, he's what we all need. He's the only one that can give us living water. He's the only one that can make us right with God. This woman had an awful past. Uh, She had a terrible past. She was outside looking in. And now God has brought her in. And God can do that to you, to me, to anybody. He can lift you out of the miry clay and put your feet on a rock. That's what salvation does. He takes your sin. He gives you righteousness. You need righteousness. You can't get it. This woman could not get it. She could not make herself righteous. She needed the one who could. Jesus. All other wells, as I said earlier, are dry. All other wells promise to satisfy, and they do not. People are drinking from all kinds of wells, popularity and power and money and prestige and sex and drugs. And all of those wells people are drinking from all the time, only to find out they will not. They will not satisfy. They just drive you into greater misery, Repentance means you stop seeing yourself the way you always have seen yourself. Repentance means that you take the opposite view of yourself that you've been cultivating your whole life. Repentance says if you don't lose your life, you'll never find it. If you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. We must recognize like this woman, I have nothing, nothing to offer but my sinful self. I've been drinking from the wrong well. It's left me empty. It's left me further from God. I've broken God's law. I've rebelled against him. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I pray if you're here this morning and that is, you're like this, you can relate to this woman. At whatever level, you've been drinking from the wrong well. I pray you repent. Stop seeing yourself the way you've always seen yourself and see yourself the way God sees you, a sinner who needs a Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time this day. Thank you, God, for this passage that reminds us of of your saving power, reminds us that you came into the world to put grace and truth on display to remind us, God, that you have reached down to us in our lost condition and called us to yourself, convicted us of our sin, brought us to repentance that we might embrace Christ, that we might have the living water that's talked about here. I thank you, God, that you have made this truth available to so many in this room through Christ. I pray that we would be bold proclaimers of this message. We have a, an answer that the world is looking for. We have an answer to the void that many feel in their hearts. We have an answer to the huge vacuum that many feel in their hearts because they've drank from wells that have left them very, very empty. 
There's so much hopelessness and fear in our world, God. There's so much rebellion in our world. There's so much evil in our world because of man's rejection of you. I pray, God, that we would proclaim truth, especially in the days in which we live, where people are seeking and wondering and hoping and running to the wrong places. May we show them the right way. Point to Christ and Him alone. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.